This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Nora Flaherty. Raindrops keep falling on my head. Now, I don't know if you've noticed, but this spring and summer have been exceptionally rainy. Actually, this June was the second rainiest June on record in New York City, with over 10 inches of rainfall in Central Park. But now it seems that, at least for the moment, the rain has let up. So today, on Fordham Conversations, we're taking advantage of that and going outside. Remember outside? To see how the natural world is faring. First today on the show, we're going to talk with Fordham plant biologist Steve Franks. Franks is an assistant professor of biological sciences at Fordham, and he is one of the scientists spearheading the dramatically named Resurrection Initiative, a massive seed-saving and growing project that aims to reveal how plants are evolving in response to climate change. Later on in the show, we'll talk about green building with architect Colin Cathcart. But first, let's talk resurrection with Steve Franks. Steve Franks, welcome. Hello, thanks for having me. So tell me about the Resurrection Initiative. This is a project that we're doing. It's several scientists involved. We're really interested in climate change and understanding how species are going to be able to respond because we know that the climate is changing and we want to know if species are going to be able to evolve and catch up with this. Um, So to do that, what we're going to do is go out and collect seeds from a lot of species right now and hold them in storage. And then we can go in the future and grow them up side by side with those original collections and see how much they've changed and actually measure evolution. When in the future? Uh, several years. We'll be able to do this in a few years um, and also farther into the future, several decades from now. But we've shown in previous studies that evolutionary changes can happen to changes in climate in just a few years. So we'll be able to have some results on this very fast. So tell me a little bit more about this project. What sorts of things are you looking for? I guess what we're going to do, like I said, is we have a preliminary list of lots of different species, but a few that we're going to target. We're going to collect from all over the country all these seeds of all these different species, and then we're going to store them at a USDA ARS facility um, in, in Colorado, which is set up to store all these seeds. This is going to be a massive seed bank. And what's going to be unique and different about this seed bank is that there are other seed banks that are existing, but they're mostly for conservation purposes. So they collect from lots of different species, but often it's um, just maybe from a few places. We're going to collect in a specific way that allows us to test evolution. And the way that we're going to do that is we're going to collect um, multiple species from individual plants. And so we know that those, all those individuals from an individual plant are, are genetically related. So that way we'll be able to use uh, genetics to understand evolutionary change, which will be different from you know, other seed banks and other ways of doing this project. Now, tell me about the origins of this project, starting with the wild mustard plant in California. Well, so this is exactly the wild mustard plant is something that I worked on when I was doing postdoctoral research there. And my advisor, Art Weiss, and I had realized that, that there was a drought in California. And they had seeds collected in the lab for other reasons before this drought. So this was an opportunity that we could take advantage of a natural change in climate. Go out and collect the seeds from this mustard plant, which is growing naturally in California again, um, and grow them up side by side. And in doing this, we found that those plants after the drought flowered as much as eight and a half days earlier. And we saw because we used this technique of collecting the seeds before and after the drought, we could show that this was an actual true evolutionary change in flowering time. And that was actually the first study that showed a natural evolutionary change in a plant in response to a change in in a natural change in the climate. How do you know that that was an evolutionary change and not just sort of an aberration? 
Right. Okay. Well, the reason that we know it's an evolutionary change is because we had the seeds collected before the drought, and then we gave them a full generation in the greenhouse where we just crossed those plants with each other. So that way we know that those lines from those plants are all genetically from plants that were before the drought. Then the ones that we collected after the drought, we did the same thing. We grew them up from a full generation in the greenhouse, crossed them with each other. And that way, we know that the only thing that's different about these plants is what's different genetically. We grew them up under the exact same environmental conditions. So we know that any change that we see in a trait is due to the difference in genetics and not to the difference in the environment. So uh, just to be clear on that, the environment drove the evolutionary change, that cha the natural change in the environment, the drought did. But what it did was the drought selected for those genotypes that were flowering earlier. So we know that when we took those plants from after the drought, this population had a higher number of earlier flowering genotypes. So that's the evolutionary change that happened. So this, the plant flowers earlier, what, what does that mean? The way that the mustard plants work is that when you put the seed in the ground, it germinates, it starts putting on leaves, and then it'll start to put out a bud, and those buds will produce flowers. Now, the mustard plant, like most plants, have indeterminate growth. So it's not like they go for exactly 17 days and then flower. It depends on their genotype, and it depends on their environmental conditions. So what happens is this is a little bit flexible in how they flower. So basically what this means is that after the drought, um, those plants when we grew them up under common conditions, naturally flowered earlier. And we know that that's genetic. And we also were able to do other studies where we could estimate the degree to which uh, this trait was genetic. And we know that a lot of variation in that trait is genetically based from that separate study. I guess I'm wondering also what, in sort of the life of this plant in the wild, does it mean if it flowers early? How does it help it to survive? Okay, well, the plants that flower um, early in drought years basically can escape the drought by flowering early. So they avoid the drought conditions. Plants that wait a long time to flower can do better under wet conditions because it's basically wet all year. In California, that's where it grows. If there's a wet year, it's wet late into the spring. And so that means those plants that wait to flower can get larger and they can produce more seeds. So it's an advantage to wait to flower under wet conditions. But if it's a drought year, then those plants to wait to flower are going to be in trouble because basically they're going to have run out of water. They're not going to be able to produce flowers. So the plants that flower early can escape the drought by flowering early. You mentioned that there are already a lot of seed banks out there, and a lot of us have probably heard of them in the context of, say, heirloom seeds or heirloom tomatoes. Why do you need a new one for this? The seed banks that exist are mostly for conservation, and they can be of natural plants or of crop plants, like you mentioned, garden plants. Uh, but the reason that we want a new seed bank to study evolution in response to climate change is that most of the existing seed banks haven't been collected in a way that optimizes the study of evolution. So a good way to study evolution is to collect from individual plants where you know that all the seeds from that plant are genetically related. And that way you can take advantage of a lot of genetic tools to study evolution. And furthermore, our um, study is going to focus specifically on species that are really good for studying evolution. So some species that have been studied in many evol evolutionary studies before. And also, the last thing is that we're going to collect very extensively. We're going to collect multiple populations throughout North America. And this allows us to look both over space and time at evolutionary change. So how would the seeds in the sort of more conservation-oriented seed banks have been collected? And also talk to me about natural seed banks and how they are inadequate. Okay. So uh, the seed banks 
that have been collected for, for example, conservation purposes, often collect from just maybe one or a few locations so that, uh, you know, sort of eliminate sometimes that spatial component. Like someone's garden. Like someone's garden or just, uh, you know, a convenient location for collecting these specific seeds. Um, so a lot of times the genetic diversity is a lot lower. We want to capture a lot more of the genetic diversity that's out there, for example. Um, another problem with these existing seed banks is that, especially those for conservation, really are specifically for that reason of conservation. So they want to hold on to those seeds in case the species goes extinct. So they don't want to loan out those seeds for people to do experiments, understandably. And the natural seed banks? And the natural seed banks, well, some really interesting studies have been done where they're able to actually like dig down into the soil, get soil cores, and get seeds from, for example, 100 years ago, and look at traits that are different between those seeds and what we see now. And that's a really interesting way to go about it. But one problem with that is that those seeds that are still existing in those seed banks, um, they might represent only a small fraction of what was around before. And they could be a non-random sample. For example, maybe only those seeds that survived were the especially large and well-preserved seeds. And maybe those are the, for example, really late flowering seeds. So this doesn't really represent what the population looked like in the past. It could to some extent, but we really don't know because of the reason that a lot of that original sample is lost. So al although that's a really good and interesting and unique way to go about it, really the perfect way to do it is to collect the seeds you know, in, in an organized and controlled way and then be able to collect again in the future and do these experiments where you compare them before and after environmental change, which is exactly what we plan to do. So if you depend on other people's seed collections or on what's already in the ground, you sort of just get a lousy sample. Uh, well, you potentially you can. You get a not as good sample as what we're planning on doing. Exactly. You're listening to Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. Today on the show, we're gingerly poking our rain-soaked heads out the window and taking a look outside. In a few minutes, we'll talk with architect Colin Cathcart about why New York City's greener than we might think, and not just because the rains made all the weeds ridiculously healthy. First, though, let's hear the rest of my conversation with Steve Franks. I was wondering when I was looking at all of this, um, this is probably kind of a novice question, but if you save seeds... Do they, just let, do they just last forever? How does that work? Yeah, seeds do not last forever. And that's one of the reasons that we're collaborating with this USDA ARS facility, um, this gene bank and genomics facility in Fort Collins, Colorado, because they're set up to exactly do that reason, to optimally preserve seeds. So they know which seeds preserve well. They can store them under really good, very cold conditions, which maintains them. But even under these optimized conditions, cryogenic conditions, seeds can still, depending on the species, only last for, for example, maybe a few decades or 100 years or so. And so periodically, you have to take those seeds, grow them out, cross them, and generate new seeds. But they're still from that original genetic stock. So you haven't changed them genetically, but you do need to grow them out to preserve them because otherwise the seeds don't last forever. They're living material, so eventually they're going to die. Tell me about the, uh, the resurrection paradigm. How does that work um, on the ground or in the ground, I guess. Okay. The resurrection paradigm is a way for studying evolution. And so this is a technique that's only been done a few times before. So although we're really interested in understanding evolution and how it works, um, this way of doing it, like I said, hasn't been used very often. But the way that it works is you take genotypes that are around, 
then you let an environmental change happen. And this could be something that happens naturally in the field, like what we're focusing on, or it can be an environmental change that you induce under laboratory conditions. But then after that change occurs, you take genotypes from afterwards, like seeds of those plants, and then you grow up the ancestors, the ones from before, with the descendants, the ones after, under common conditions. Then any difference in the traits between those species you know is due to evolution in response to that environmental change. So that's the essence of the resurrection approach. Why do you call it the resurrection paradigm? That well, sounds very godlike. It does sound very godlike, I guess. The reason that we call that is because we're sort of metaphorically uh, resurrecting those seeds from er an earlier time to compare them with the descendants under common conditions. So that's why it's called that. Do you ever feel like a mad scientist? Uh, well, I have, you know, not only used these metaphors of re resurrection, um, but also talked about as if this were a virtual time machine, like as if we could go back in time to study them. So although, you know, metaphorically, that sounds like crazy ideas, this is really something that we can do that can provide really useful information on what's going on with climate change and how we can respond to it. Why is it important to understand this stuff? I think climate change we know is occurring and is one of the biggest threats that we have to sustainability and to biodiversity. And understanding how species can respond to changes in the environment is really critical to determine how we can best respond to changes in climate. So I think it's very important to figure out how to mitigate changes in climate and reduce climate effects, but we also want to know how species are going to be able to respond so we'll know what to do about that. What would you potentially do about it? Well, for example, any critically endangered species that we know that don't evolve very fast in response to climate change, we would pay particularly close attention to preserving those populations, preserving those seeds. For other species, like weedy species that we know could evolve, or that this study might show can evolve fast in response to climate change, then we wouldn't have to worry about those particular species as much as maybe the other species that would. So this will, basically what this will enable us to do is to target the species, target the locations, and things like that that are most vulnerable and most susceptible to climate change. Target them and do what? Uh, will help in their preservation. I think that would be the main thing, is to preserve them. Um, potentially, people have talked about moving around species in response to changes in climate, which is one way to go. But again, really the most important thing to do is try to alleviate and eliminate climate change as much as possible. That's really the focus. So another main objective is, of this program is really just to understand better how evolution works. Evolution is just a fundamental importance in biology. It's just the main process that we want to understand. So this is a really unique opportunity to get some more insight into ev how evolution is working. We're taking this unique approach of the resurrection paradigm, which hasn't been used before, and then we're taking advantage of the opportunity that the climate is changing in rapid rates. So when we put this together with some of the newly developed genetic tools, we're really getting much more insight into how evolution works. Is now an especially important time to be doing this? I think now is a critical and the perfect time to start this project. It's really a time when the climate change is accelerating. It's the time that we have the facilities to do this project. And it's the time that we're getting more and more genetic tools to understand how evolution works. So when you bring all these things together, it's the perfect time to start this project now. So how is all this going to work? How is this project going to work? Well, one thing that we're going to do is we're going to start by hiring a lot of students and technicians to go all around the country and start collecting these seeds. So that's going to be a great way for students and a lot of people to be involved in this project. What they will then do is they we will hire a, a coordinator to basically arrange all the logistics and things like that. People will go out. 
They'll have their target list of species. They'll learn how to identify them. They'll collect them. They'll GPS record where the populations are, and then they'll send those seeds to Fort Collins, Colorado, where they'll be processed and stored. And then what we're going to do is we will have a board of people who will determine the people who will then have access to the seeds in the future to do these kind of studies that we have envisioned. So obviously the people that are involved in this project, like myself, will be able to do some of these experiments, but we want this to be available to the wider scientific community. So basically people will be able to put it request for seeds um, and we will, to the extent possible, give people seeds so that lots of people can do interesting and fun experiments with this resource. This is a little speculative, but if you think, knowing what you do about plant biology, what do you think the world is going to look like in terms of uh, what's out there that's green in the next hundred years or so? I think in the next hundred years or so, if the climate continues to change, we're going to see a lot of dramatic changes. So we already know that the environment is really dynamic. Species evolve really fast in response to changes. So I think we'll see, and we already know that there's we're already in the midst of the largest extinction in recent history. So we know that a lot of species are already going to extinct. Even more are going to go extinct. I think a lot of things are going to change. And so a lot has to be done about it, including studying and preserving what we have now. When you were talking about sort of seemed to me like maybe the weeds were just going to take over. Is that what you anticipate? Well, I think to a large extent that may be true. I think we're going to lose a lot of threatened and endangered species and a lot of species that we, you know, we predict will be most likely to respond to changes in climate and other changes in land use and things like that are going to be more weedy species. So if we don't pay particular attention to conservation, that's exactly what we're going to have, a world of weeds. I guess we just call them weeds because they flourish no matter what anyway. Exactly. They they flourish no matter what. And, and oftentimes they're things that we're not as economically interested in, but they're often interesting as study species for sure. Now, I think this is really interesting because I'm interested in botany. But for people who are not interested in botany, how is this relevant like in terms of how we use or think about plants and our environment in general? Well, obviously, everybody depends on plants for things that we eat, for agriculture, things like that, and just things that we have around. Um, they're, they're really important for the environment. And so that's one of the reasons that we want to do this with plants. Also, plants, because they have seeds, they're perfect for this study. For other organisms, they're not as easy to store. But really, the key thing is this is going to give us so much more information about how evolution works and how all species respond to changes in climate. And so I think that's the general messages that's going to be useful um, sort of for general things like that. Well, Steve Franks is an assistant professor of biological sciences at Fordham. Thanks so much, Steve, for coming in. Thanks again for having me. Alive. It's alive. It's alive. This is Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. Just after the show this morning, it's Cityscape with George Bodarkey. On today's show, Bastille Day. That's ahead at 7.30. First, though, I've always found it really interesting that although New York City can feel like it's about the furthest place from nature on the planet, in many ways, living in the concrete jungle is a very, as they say, green thing to do. Colin Cathcart is an associate professor of architecture at Fordham and the associate director of environmental studies. He's also one of the founders of the architectural firm Kish and Cathcart. You might have seen their work on Coney Island. They're the ones who designed the solar terminal at the Stillwell Avenue stop. I spoke with Colin Cathcart in our studios about how and why urban living can be pretty darn green. 
Colin Cathcart, welcome. Pleased to be here. Obviously, as an architect, you see architecture as being one of the fundamental ways that people can live more sustainably. Tell me what your philosophy is about green architecture and green planning. Well, the philosophy is, if, if we're stepping back now, uh, is that we have been building uh, over the last 100, 200 years in a manner that assumes exploitation of resources that we are discovering are, are probably finite and that our relationship to, to nature and to the world in general presupposes that exploitive and uh, consumptive relationship to nature. Now, I think in, in architecture, we're finding that if we have a more cooperative relationship to nature, if we have a more custodial relationship to the world, and we incorporate that attitude into our design, that the architecture that comes out is much more enjoyable to occupy, it's more in tune to daily and seasonal cycles, and therefore more satisfying on a philosophical level, but also cheaper to run, more responsible as an economic model than uh, the kind of architecture that we've been building over the last 100, 200 years. For those of us who live in New York City, our situation with uh, with regard to sustainable living is a little bit different in terms of, say, carbon emissions than it is for people who live in other places that are less packed. Tell me why that is. Well, uh, uh, New York City is, is uh, admirably positioned to take advantage of this philosophy, basically, because if you are out in the middle of nature... You're living the, the lifestyle of the sort of back-to-the-land uh, rejection of corporate uh, rapacity. And, uh, and you're, you're out there in the countryside uh, living, living your life. You're actually living a, a, a lifestyle that has a tremendous environmental impact. Uh, you may be hopping into your car uh, eight or ten times a day, sometimes only just to pick up a cup of coffee and driving hundreds and hundreds of miles a week if you total it all up, that's a big impact. Your house will be out in the landscape where every, uh, you know, your roof and every side of your house is exposed to uh, the outdoors and, and losing a tremendous amount of energy. Inside the city, we can have so, so many efficiencies by using transit, I, I can travel for an hour on the New York City transit system, and I've, I've passed by thousands of stores and, and uh, millions and millions of dollars of buying power and millions of jobs. Uh, the, the efficiencies are tremendous, and I'm, and I'm traveling at roughly the efficiency of about, I, I think it's uh, been calculated above 500 passenger miles per gallon. My apartment is is sheltered on four sides by my neighbors above, below, and to either side, uh, and they're heating their units too. So I'm not really losing an awful lot of energy, and and the central mechanical systems are far far more efficient than anything you could install in a single family house. To boot, there's there's the fact that to build your house out in the suburbs, you've robbed many species of a natural habitat. And uh, here in New York City, uh, that habitat was lost 
you know, hundreds of years ago, so I don't feel quite so guilty taking over greenfield areas for development as something entirely, uh, something entirely different. I read that um, 80% of New York City's carbon emissions come from the buildings. How does that break down? The, the carbon emissions from buildings uh, in New York City are a higher proportion of, of carbon emissions per capita simply because we don't drive as much. We don't have as much uh, heavy industry uh, or as much uh, shipping as other localities would. So what remains uh, in a very efficient place, really, are the emissions from buildings. That's from heating and cooling, uh, really primarily, uh, from uh, skin losses, from lack of insulation, from leaky windows. That's roughly what, uh, what the carbon emissions are coming from in building stock. And how does what you do help? Well, uh, number one, a, a, a building that is uh, deserving of renewable energy sources has to be an energy-conserving building. So it has to be highly insulated, has to have a very hi highly efficient mechanical system for heating and cooling, has to have uh, energy-saving uh, light fixtures and uh, should be daylit, ideally. Once you've done that, to integrate photovoltaics into the skin of, uh, of buildings in uh, the city is something that's actually becoming quite cost-effective. In the next 10 years, you're going to see more and more buildings doing exactly that. You hear the phrase sort of green architecture a lot, and it sounds like a little bit of a catchphrase, but what does it mean? Uh, green architecture <laughs> is a general is a general phrase uh, relating to a whole series of design strategies, which will allow buildings to, first of all, conserve energy, contribute less uh, greenhouse gases to to the atmosphere, conserve materials, use re materials that are. Uh, recyclable or re uh, rapidly renewable. Also, position buildings in the landscape or, or in the cityscape that will lower the necessity for greenhouse gas emitting transportation systems, i.e. buildings should be located closer to mass transit and uh, bus routes, uh, and also accommodate uh, bicycle and uh, pedestrian trips that uh, buildings also in their interior environments should be open to views of nature and, and the out, or at least the outdoors, and that the indoor environmental quality is, is beneficial to human health, that people use the stairs more, that uh, are encouraged to use the stairs more, that uh, the indoor air quality is good and healthy and uh, in a green building, the, the indoor air quality may be better than uh, the air quality outside. Are the buildings in, say, in my neighborhood in the Upper East Side that are new green buildings, are they actually green? Uh, <laughs> I know you can't answer that for every individual <laughs> yes, building. I, but <laughs> I, there is uh, a tendency towards greenwash in uh, marketing. And uh, to the extent that you can, uh, consumers of, uh, uh, you know, of architecture should look very, very carefully uh, so that they're not just 
buying a bamboo floor because it's a new and cool building finish and looks nice and has a has a nice uh, nice sounding wrap. But they should, you know, consumers of architect, you know, people who are out there buying a new apartment or uh, commissioning a new building uh, should be looking behind the walls, behind the finishes. Uh, to the mechanical systems, uh, renewable energy systems, plumbing systems, uh, making sure that it's a good quality building. And then looking at the ratings. Uh, you know, look at those yellow tags on your refrigerator. Uh, you know, look carefully for the EER ratings of mechanical equipment. Look very carefully to how much it's going to cost to actually operate what it is uh, you're buying. And uh, also there's a, there's a new rating system out there just developed in the last 10, 20 years called LEED that allows you to actually objectively rate just how green uh, your building is. A very simple rating, whether it's certified, silver, gold, or platinum. And that's a, a fairly objective standard as to just how green uh, a building is. So don't necessarily buy the PR. Uh, look under the hood and see uh, how the building is actually working. Well, Colin Cathcart is an associate professor of architecture at Fordham, and he's the associate director of environmental studies. He's also a principal in the architectural firm of Kish and Cathcart. Colin, thanks so much for coming in. My pleasure. Thanks. From WFUV, this has been Fordham Conversations. If you have any comments or questions about today's show, you can email us at FordhamConversations at WFUV.org. We would, of course, love to hear from you. Fordham Conversations is available as a podcast at WFUV.org, and it's also in our audio archive, which you can also find on our website. I'm Nora Flaherty. Cityscape is next. Thank you for listening, and have a great weekend. Oh, and by the way, it's predicted to rain today. Sorry. This is WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org.